Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 12 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, the 21st of April. And Leon, we're talking to Adrian Hondros of Porter Davis this week. That's right. Adrian Hondros is the chief executive of Porter Davis. And he's going to be talking to us all about the housing construction market in Australia. Which is very interesting right now. And And uh, after that, we're talking to Stephen Kukoulos, also about housing. That's right. And he has a definite view about what's happening and which way, what the regulators are telling us. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very interesting. So now let's listen to Adrian Hondros. Adrian, tell us about the housing industry. Yes, thank you, Leon, for the uh, opportunity. So I think there's, at a general level, you know, the circumstances are still pretty good for the industry. You know, interest rates are still low, uh, population growth is still reasonably strong, unemployment still reasonably low, uh, so the conditions are still pretty good for the industry. I think if you look across Australia, it's a mixed bag, which is not unusual. Uh, you know, the bigger states, you know, Victoria and New South Wales, um, are relatively strong from a market perspective, and it's less so in the other states at the moment. Right, so less so, same places like Western Australia? Yeah, yeah, well, Western Australia came off a very strong peak that was aligned with the mining investment boom. It's well documented, of course, that's come off and uh, their uh, activity has come off with it. Uh, The big expectation at the moment is that the RBA at some stage is going to start lifting interest rates, um, maybe not this year, but certainly Mm. 2018. Yeah. Um, How would that impact on the industry? Yeah, so, um, and as you say, expectations. So, you know, interest rate expectations come and go a little bit. So we'll just have to wait and see when a rate rise does come through. When it does come through, which I'm sure inevitably it will, uh, that affects affordability and uh, and therefore affects uh, consumers' attitude towards the industry, whether it's building a home or buying an established home. So it inevitably affects affordability, which affects sentiment towards building and buying. Some people say that the apartment area is uh, showing some signs of of softness, how would you see it? Maybe going longer term than most people are looking at. Yeah, so certainly the data I've seen, uh, whether it's from the Housing Industry Association, from CoreLogic and from all the major banks, uh, they're all talking about, they're all forecasting uh, an oversupply, if I can use that terminology, in the market, um, you know, generally across Australia's cities. Um, and that, again, looking at the data that I've looked at, it looks like it will be very much the case in the next couple of years or so that'll be the case but then quite a number of the uh, research organizations are forecasting a recovery after those next couple of years or so. As the population of Melbourne grows and it's growing quite quickly isn't it? Yeah well not just Melbourne just as population growth generally catches up you know in any times of oversupply eventually demand reels that back in but certainly Melbourne's you know Melbourne's a a growing city as we know and uh, the forecasts I've seen project that Melbourne's population population uh, will exceed Sydney's um, you know, within the foreseeable future. So that's quite a development for, uh, for Melbourne. And Melbourne's a very active market. You know, from an established homes point of view, uh, it's still strong. Uh, from a construction point of view, especially with residential dwellings, it's still strong. And it's not far off its historical highs. So there's a lot of positives still in the Melbourne market. One of the big crunch issues out there at the moment is housing affordability. 
I mean, that's such a huge issue. There's evidence that younger people aren't the um, 25 to 34-year-old group isn't in there as much. I suspect a lot of that's also because that group is actually taking longer to settle down than their parents did. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> there's some evidence to suggest that. I think there is. <laughs> I think that's probably true. And so they're, they're less likely to get into home ownership. Mm. But nonetheless, it's an issue. Mm. How do you see that housing affordability issue and what can we do to address it? I mean, it's a very challenging one and it's not something that's unique to Australia. I think it's interesting to look at the behaviours across the generations. Uh, so, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was determined to get my first apartment and upgrade to my first freestanding home and move on from there. Pretty sure my parents were the same and probably their parents. Uh, but, you know, this this current generation that are in their 20s or so, um, they aren't necessarily as, as dedicated to that idea. They don't necessarily see that as essential. A lot of them are still living at home with parents. Um, and all the data supports that people are staying at home longer. Uh, even I think the marriage data shows that people are getting married later. So there's different dynamics going on and I think we need to be very conscious of that. And certainly if people are staying at home longer, then they've got more opportunity to save and perhaps that's one of the drivers around affordability. They feel they have to stay at home longer to have more time to save rather than trying to pay rent and save at the same time, which we know is, of course, uh, very challenging. If you look at the European model, though, most people there rent and they would rent for their lifetime. Indeed. So if that happens here, that would tend to make good apartments, not some of the things you see in the CBD, but it would tend to make good apartments a good investment, wouldn't it? Oh, quite possibly. I think the I think we're quite different to Europe. We've got population growth. We're about to conclude the longest positive economic growth cycle in the history of modern modern records. So I think end of June means that we pip the Netherlands in terms of the previous record holder. I think it puts us at about 25 years or so of positive economic growth. Um, and the great Australian dream, I think, is still alive and, and well in people's minds and that you know, still the great majority, I think, are still believing they want to own their own home whatever form that home might take, uh, I just think that we're seeing a deferral of that for some people, that they're more interested in travelling more earlier in their lives, perhaps they're pursuing uh, other careers, people are more mobile these days. So I think there's other dynamics going on, but I still think that that dream of ownership in whatever form it takes is still alive and well. Now, your, your big market, of course, would also include investors. Yes. How major is that for you, uh, investment? And where is the money coming from? It's important to us, but uh, um, owner-occupier is still our main, our main marketplace, although we do certainly see investors. And one of the examples I would give you is that um, uh, I'm aware of some Sydney investors recently that are, are building with us. And their attitude was, was that, well, I can build two or three homes in Melbourne for the price of buying one investment property in Sydney. And from their point of view, they thought that's a great idea. And that's obviously their decision to, to do that. But that is the reality of, of uh, some of the differentials in the marketplace. So, yeah, investors are important to us. Maybe over time, they might even become more important. But at the moment, certainly it's the owner-occupier, which is our main, uh, our main clients. What about the outer cities, Ballarat, Bendigo, even Albury, Wodonga? Some of the politicians seem to think they ought to be centres of business, centres of activity. Ballarat already is. Hmm, indeed. It's a university city. Are you interested in that sort of development that'd be more uh, less on the boil would it oh look we're in bendigo and we're in ballarat um and have been for some time and we have active display centers there and we're selling into those into those markets so we see them as opportunity we don't have porter davis brand operating in uh, albury wodonga but certainly bendigo and ballarat we're active and intend to be are you looking to expand into other parts of regional victoria 
Yeah, so there's a, a couple of ways that we operate. So often we're operating under our own brand and building Porter Davis homes by Porter Davis. Uh, but we also do license other builders and they can use our designs, but under their brand. And they take a lot of comfort from that because our designs have proven themselves to be popular in the market and uh, we build quality homes. So that's another way that we operate in, in other areas outside of uh, Melbourne Metropolitan, uh, Bendigo, Ballarat and Taralgon are our main areas. And at the moment we're expanding, just expanded, uh, just launched our first display in uh, southeast Queensland. So is that your first expansion interstate? Yes, it is. Yes, right. yes. So it's quite a thing for us. Um, keep in mind, I've only been with the organisation since October. Uh, so but look, looking back on the history, Queensland's a, a really important step for us uh, and we see great long-term opportunity there, as do another, uh, a number of other uh, large volume builders as well. So um, others have been there for some time. For us, this is a new a new development. So Queensland's got real growth opportunities? Long term, yes. I mean, the data at the moment shows that the Victorian market, especially metropolitan Melbourne, is much stronger than most of Queensland. Uh, but we think that long term, uh, Queensland, southeast Queensland, um, is uh, an attractive market for us, yes. What about building costs in Australia? How do we compare? They, you know, the price of a house to build is still reasonable, I, I gather. How's it, how are costs affecting you? Yeah, look, it's it's difficult to make comparisons from one country to the next because you've got different building codes, different regulations, different laws, and they all have to be complied with and they can add costs um, and even just different tax regimes, etc. It makes it difficult to make comparison. But we're certainly finding that, um, uh, you know, we can attract uh, quality labour, skilled labour. Uh, the building condition, conditions in Melbourne have been so strong that it's become more challenging to attract enough skilled labour, and that's particularly the case in uh, in northern parts of Melbourne and perhaps to a lesser extent in the west of Melbourne. But certainly um, uh, you know, we're finding that we can still bring what we believe to be quality, affordable new dwellings to the market for our clients. Yep. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Thanks, Adrian. Well, housing construction, particularly standalone housing, which is uh, Porter Davis's uh, bag, is uh, very interesting right now. That's right. Look, it's it's actually keeping the economy going. It's yeah. it's, it's one of the growth sectors of the economy, and it's uh, you know it's it's, it's re- we're all watching it very carefully. Yeah, and it's very good for employment. So now, Stephen Kakoulis and the Economist view of housing. Uh, we spoke to Stephen on uh, Skype, and uh, I fear we got a bit of an echoey line. But uh, clear enough, but echoey. I was really struck by the RBA's report yesterday. What's really struck me is that Philip Lowe is really concerned about the housing issue and uh, the affordability issue, the risks, whereas Glenn Stevens took took the view that this too shall pass. I think that's right, yes, that he was a bit more let the market determine the, the uh, correction in house prices when that occurs through well, what we're seeing, a, a, a lot of building in apartments in Brisbane, Melbourne to some extent too. So he was more inclined to let that work its way out rather than rather than sort of constrain the rest of the economy by um, uh, keeping rates tight and all the uh, macro prudential measures, which Phil Lowe seems to be really keen to embrace. And the report, the minutes from the RBA meeting said the macro prudential measures might take some time to work through and that might, more might be necessary. Well, that's the really interesting thing because the macro prudential measures, if, if we just sort of dissect you know, roughly what they are in, in layman's terms, it's actually limiting the amount that the banks are going to lend to investors. It's limiting the amount of interest-only loans, among other things, and just tightening up on the lending criteria, I guess, to people who can you know, afford to make the repayments, basically, to put it in very blunt terms. So um, 
these things don't happen overnight because, of course, there are still lots of credible borrowers out there. There are still people who are legitimately wanting to buy their first house. And you've got to remember that it's not just Sydney and Melbourne. Prices in many of the other cities are, are quite affordable. You know, Perth prices are weak and, and affordable. Darwin, Adelaide, uh, even to some extent Brisbane. And, and, of course, the regional parts of the economy are, are still relatively uh, affordable. So the RBA has got to be careful not to hit those markets that, you know, that are already, you know, medium or soft, if you like, for the sake of uh, hitting Melbourne and Sydney on the head. But again, banks have got to change their lending criteria. Uh, investors and other people have got to be deterred from buying. And of course, that takes time. Well, yes, uh, there was very interesting. There was that report, I think it was from KPMG and on low income earners turning to negative gearing. And, well, and that it's... was really worrying. I, I read that and I thought, my God, this is subprime territory. Well, it's it's got a lot of the characteristics of the subprime, which, of course, we look back to what happened in the US back in 2006, 7 and 8 in the lead into the GFC, was, of course, that they were lending any amount of money to every Tom, Dick and Harry uh, with very, very scant uh, regard to their borrowing and repayment capacities. And to the extent that the RBA in their analysis have found uh, that there is this skewing towards loans being written to low-income earners, who don't have any buffer. I think that's the point that they made also, that they don't have a lot of buffer in case you know, maybe they lose their job or they have an unexpected household expense or, heaven forbid, interest rates rise. I think that's, uh, that's the issue that the RBA is wanting to flag. Uh, so there's that vulnerability. Now, it's not yet a problem. Yeah, the, the loan arrears and things like that are still very, very low, but the Reserve Bank's job is to manage risks, is to manage the sustainability of the expansion. And if they can see either unemployment creeping up so people can't make their repayments, wages growth, which is already low, remaining very low, which looks likely, or you know, maybe interest rates will be higher in a year or two or three, then of course we have a significant proportion of those with a mortgage, both investors and even owner-occupiers who might come under financial stress. Well, one of the lagging indicators, I think, is the number of mortgage delinquencies. That seems to be on the rise, uh, according to Moody's and S and P. It's it's on the rise now around the state, around around Australia. Yeah. It's edging up, and of course, uh, they do split it by state. And of course, we, we touched on Perth before, and of course, Perth house prices have been falling for the last couple of years. They're down about ten percent from the peak, and of course, that's where the the increase in delinquencies or loan arrears is starting to be most apparent. Sydney and Melbourne is still okay because if you fall into financial difficulty, you sell your house, you probably still make money on selling your house. But in, in these other centres where they're, they're the canary in the coal mine, if you like, in terms of what might happen if we were to get uh, other influences that were to see the Sydney and Melbourne markets not only pause, but if they came off a bit and the rental vacancy rates were to rise and the rental yields were to fall further, then, of course, not only owner-occupiers, but more importantly, investors run into a problem. And is that... The question when they say, well, this this asset of mine isn't performing well, so I'll sell it. And, of course, you get this rush to the exit. That, of course, is part of the problem that happened in uh, the subprime debacle in the US. And, yeah, well, it's it's some risk and a growing risk that it happens here. It's interesting that the RBA is now flagging this as an issue and, you know, something really needs to be done about it. Well, that's the question. And it's sort of, uh, without being too unkind, it's it was it's been an issue for three or four or five years that there was this slackness, I suppose, and it was in the aftermath of the GFC, don't forget, that you know, we didn't want a rerun of that uh, or that to occur in Australia. You know, we were pretty well uh, guarded against it locally when the GFC actually came along you know, roughly a decade ago. Here we are now with the 
situation where perhaps they could have done more. The fact that they didn't doesn't mean that they should do nothing, of course. So there is a bit of catch-up going on. But, of course, as we just touched on, it takes a fair while for this to actually work its way through the economy. There is a long time lag. So people looking to buy you know, today or signing contracts today are the ones that probably have got away with it, if you like, and they're the ones that are probably the most vulnerable to a fall in prices or a weakness in wages or, dare I say it, an increase in interest rates. The other key issue, of course, is uh, housing affordability, and the coalition seems to be split on the issue of people actually dipping into their super to buy houses. Now, to my way of thinking, that would actually force up house prices and you'd only see more people ending up on the pension. What's your view about that? Oh, look, I, I think you're right. And as lo- a lot of people have said, I think it's, it's a widely held view that that is not good economic policy. All it does is increase demand so that you can think of a scenario where a young person with their access to, let's say, for argument's sake, there's a couple looking to buy a house that get access to 50, 60, 70,000 of their super. They go to this housing auction. What are they going to do? They've got their cash already advanced from their bank. They say, well, we thought we could only afford a certain amount of money, but they've got this access to the 50000 in super, for example. They'll just put it on the, on the price that they bid. So you're quite right that it pushes up prices. So for the lucky people selling their property, they'd get this extra windfall gain. It does nothing to improve affordability. And as you said, it actually hurts superannuation. Yeah, we know the benefits of compound interest. So if you're taking away the first five or seven or 10 years of contributions to something, which superannuation is a 30 or 40 or 45 year strategy for your retirement incomes, if you take away you know, five or ten years of that of those contributions, you actually uh, mangle, if that's the right word, uh, the superannuation of those people who were to take their money out and to put it into a house. And they would end up on the pension, which would cost taxpayers. And they would end up on the pension, which would cost it, correct. So that's the problem, but that's for a treasurer in 20 or 30 years' time. So in a sense, that's the issue where you're proverbially kicking the can down the road. So it's not good policy, and I see that the Prime Minister, while he hasn't completely smashed it, he certainly... Now reiterated some of his earlier words where he doesn't like the idea. So let's hope let's hope that one gets killed before it gets to the budget next month. Nonetheless, uh, housing affordability has now become a key political issue because it really highlights the divide between the haves and have-nots in society and the government looks intent on dealing with it in the budget. They do. They're talking about a range of other issues. There's been other kites flying, if you know what I mean, in terms of do we limit the number of properties that investors can buy? Do they look at restricting the amount of uh, borrowing or the, the dollar amount that people can put against their taxable incomes through negative gearing? These are sort of half measures. They've all got a little bit of uh, uh, merit to have them being discussed anyway, but they're ignoring the, ignoring the big ones, and that is the capital gains tax concessions. It's the negative gearing rules which allow investors just to buy property and have the have the other taxpayers subsidise their interest costs on that proportion of their um, of their borrowing. So. We'll see what happens in the budget. It'll be interesting to see the extent to which they can address this affordability issue because that's their current uh, mantra at the moment. That's the thing that they're going to be pushing with. So I think there'll be a lot of uh, close examination of what they actually do on affordability or whether it's just a few band-aids around the problem. So we'll wait and see what happens. We'll wait and see what happens. And here's hoping that there's a couple of things happening. Yeah, Maybe this discussion is going to deter people. We know that consumer sentiment is very fickle and sentiment towards buying properties is very fickle. So perhaps um, we'll see in the next few months that this debate right now is causing people to hold off a bit. You know, we've had some economists saying, don't buy, you should be renting. I don't know whether people listen to economists like that, but you know, we, the, the, the conditions are in place for a cooling in the housing market, almost regardless of what happens in the budget, although the budget could improve 
improve the affordability situation if they were to take a few bold decisions in terms of the negative gearing and capital gains tax. Well, let's see what happens. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time again. And as always, thanks, Leon. So how do you see that, Leon? Well, it worries me, Gary. It really worries me. If you have a lot of low-income earners benefiting from negative gearing, that to me smacks of, of subprime in the US. We know what happened in the US was subprime, and that is a real worry. Government really needs to, and regulators really need to do something about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's very dangerous. I mean, they're taking up interest, uh, interest-only loans, and if the uh, market implodes, we're in deep deep trouble. So, on that uh, dire note, um, let's listen to the news. Well, Gary, it's interesting. Stocks around the world have been falling with British Prime Minister Theresa May's snap election call adding to geopolitical uncertainties for investors. Markets are already edgy about tensions simmering from North Korea and China to Syria and Russia to elections in France, where two candidates wanting to take the country out of the region's common currency remain in contention in what is now the most unpredictable race in recent French history. Now, the first round of voting in France will be this weekend. Add to that the worries about falling iron ore prices, which on Tuesday fell to their lowest level since November. Iron ore has nosedived 32% from its high point in February this year. And I like the uh, take from uh, Daily FX chief currency strategy, John Kicklider, and he put it bluntly in a note to his clients, we're overpriced, overrisk, and just waiting to get creamed by a very significant wave of volatility and fear. I think he's absolutely right. You know, it's a worry, isn't it? Well, well, the markets might pick up, but uh, it's a sign of what's going to be ahead. We can expect more of this. Yeah, the, the only optimistic note is that all of this is cyclical and it'll pick up and then it'll go down again. Despite that, the International Monetary Fund and its flagship report on the state of the global economy nudged up its forecast for world growth this year a tenth of a percentage points to 3.5%. That's the fastest rate in five years, if the IMF is correct, which is good. And also, the Chinese economy has expanded by a faster than expected 6.9%. The growth rate for the world's second biggest economy smashed expectations with a Reuters survey of economists tipping it would come in at 6.8%. It also came in above Premier Li Keqing's prediction that growth could be around 6.5%. And growth in China last year was 6.7%. Now, this growth was driven by government spending on infrastructure and a hot housing market. Analysts had expected the growth would come in lower, with Chinese government trying to rein in housing prices and the stimulus measures losing steam. Industrial production was up 7.6%, well above forecast of 6.3%. Retail growth soared 10.9%. Now, the key, though, is that China's growth has been driven by rising levels of corporate debt, which has been growing at twice the rate of the overall economy. And that is a real worry about the shadow banking system, Gary. Yeah, indeed it is. I mean, the debt can just take the shine right off the Chinese. And the other thing I think is um, the uh, Chinese president has been trying to control corruption. I don't know how he's going to do that. It's been around for millennia, but that also is a problem. I think so too. Yeah. Now, the ANZ team of economists said China's headline GDP needs to be interpreted with caution because of its interpretation of the statistics. But other economists are saying it's a good sign for the global economy if China is steaming ahead. Interestingly, and we talked about this with Stephen Kikoulis, the Reserve Bank of Australia has identified the soft labour market and housing as the two big issues that need to be watched carefully. The RBA kept official interest rates at their record low of 1.5% at that meeting, at its last meeting. It was the seventh time in a row that the RBA had kept rates on hold. The minutes from its April the 4th meeting noted that regulators had started cracking down on riskier bank lending, and the RBA said it wouldn't have an immediate impact. It also noted that risks in the housing market seemed to be growing, and it noted in the jobs market it was uh, growth was subdued. 
and the inevitability is that rates have got to go up, but uh, getting them up there is going to be very difficult, not only for the banks, but also for uh, politics. Now, there's an alarming study from KPMG, which we talked about with Stephen Kukulis, showing that Australia's poorest people are taking on negatively geared property investments, despite their inability to manage the risks, and it puts them at severe risk of financial distress when interest rates begin to rise. While the proportion of households facing economic hardship has remained static in recent years, the total number of very poor households has risen and reached almost half a million people. Household incomes have grown, not because of rising wages and salaries, but rather due to higher investment income and government transfers. According to the KPMG Economics Report, which is called Financial Stress in Australian Households, the haves, the have-nots, the tax and the have-nothings. The report found that the bottom 20% of households recorded the highest rate of growth in investment income. That's the bottom 20% of households at 8.5% per annum. And that compares to an average of 2.3% over the past decades for the other households. And that increase reflects a greater exposure to investment activities like negatively geared property investment, and that puts people on lower incomes at risk of being unable to meet their mortgage repayments if interest rates rise. And while people across all income spectrums claim losses, those on the highest income were the biggest beneficiary in dollar terms. Now, of course, in recent weeks, there's been a growing chorus of voices, including the Australian Institute of Company Directors, the chair of the government's financial systems inquiry, David Murray, calling for policy changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has also said that one of the reasons higher investment loans and interest-only loans were climbing rapidly and contributing to higher house prices was due to the tax arrangements that apply to investment in residential property in Australia. But Treasurer Scott Morrison has ruled out any changes to negative gearing in May's federal budget. What else is he going to do? He says he's not going to tackle uh, capital gains tax, not going to tackle negative gearing. Well, as I said, Gary, what worries me about that KPMG study is it shows that we could be heading in sub- prime territory and that's a worry and it could come very quickly now despite last week's strong jobs figures australian consumer confidence has taken has fallen again on the back of rising geopolitical and housing risks the anz roy morgan consumer confidence index slipped 1.9 percent last week partly reversing the previous week's gain and dragging the index back below its long run average now, the other interesting big piece of news is that the federal government is abolishing the 457 visa and replacing with two new visas. Current visa holders will not be affected by the changes, which will see the introduction of two new temporary skills visa, a two-year visa and a more specialised one for four years targeted high skills. Now, employers will need to do labour market testing in Australia before applying to sponsor overseas workers, and the four-year category will have tighter criteria and a higher standard of English language skills. More than 216 occupations have been removed from the list of eligible occupations for temporary work visas. That includes goat farmers and turf growers, so that's all good. Now, the government will establish a training fund as part of the replacement package for 457 visas. Now, the Turnbull government's move to can the 457 visa program is making Australian technology businesses nervous, with the startup community in particular worried about the prospect of an acute staff shortage. And while the 457 visa is used across all industries, it's particularly important for the technology industry and, of course, in the hospitality industry, Gary. As somebody pointed out this morning, the Vice-Chancellor of ANU, who's a Nobel Prize winner, could well have been excluded by these rules. That's right. Well, universities are very worried as well. Well, yeah, where are you going to get researchers? And I was talking to a guy who runs a, uh, a bakery in Sydney the other day, and he said, look, four of his staff are 457 visa holders, and he says, 
I can't get Australians to get up at two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, because he's a small baker and he's a, he's a specialist. And, and he said, and the difference is when you get locals coming in, they do a course in baking and they move on after six months, whereas people from overseas will stay on for years. But of course, a real challenge for Australians' technology sectors is at the small pool of local talent. That said, the sweeping change of the skilled migration program have been broadly welcomed by business, saying it's badly needed change. Although there are some concerns. Over of the new language requirements and implementation. And at the base of all this, and it's true also in in countries like France and Britain, is the kind of effect on on the culture. Well, it's happening in America too now. Yes. Now, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has been directed to investigate Australia's gas market in a bid to improve supply guarantees for industry. The Treasury Scott Morrison directed the ACCC to establish a monitoring regime by using its inquiry powers to compel the gas industry to provide information after the much talked about gas summit in Canberra failed to find a solution to the crisis threatening to force up prices, putting manufacturers out of business and costing hundreds of jobs. The meeting stopped short of bringing in measures to free up more gas supplies for domestic users on the East Coast, nor did it look at restricting LNG exports that some manufacturers are demanding to tackle prices that have more than doubled in some contracts. And the government did not push for gas swaps proposed by the Australian Industry Group and supported by Labor that would see Queensland's LNG exporters like Santos GNLNG Venture buying cheap gas on the Asian market, filling export sales contracts and then freeing up local gas for the manufacturing industry. In other words, what we're saying is that this whole business to be from the beginning of exports has been uh, marked by stupidity. Absolute stupidity, incompetence. I mean, this government should be tackled. This is the key economic issue now facing Australia. We could be losing a lot of our manufacturers. Innes Willocks was on Sky yesterday saying Australian industry will leave the country if they don't sort this out. Well, energy is vital. And what are you going to do if you're paying too much for it? An 11th hour bid by the Pacific Consortium, which includes private equity firm KKR, Morgan Stanley's infrastructure, Macquarie Group and First State Super, has crashed the public party welcoming the proposed $11 billion merger between Tabco and Tats. Now, with its sights on the Tats lotteries business, the consortium has pitched an offer of $4.21 per share. That itself is worth about $7.2 billion. The offer is one cent higher than the $4.20 per share, the Tabco's bid, but it's totally strategic. It's a chess game. It's designed to get the consortium the right to do some due diligence on the business and look under the hood. And Tats Group shareholders still wait to see if regulators will give a nod to the Tats Group Tats Tabco merger. And because the consortium's bid is an all-cash offer, it won't require le- regulatory approval. And of course, the consortium's last bid was rejected by TATS just before Christmas. Now, BHP Billiton spin-off South 32 has abandoned plans to spend $200 million to buy a metallurgical coal mine in New South Wales, combined with a stake in the Port Kembla coal terminal from Peabody Energy. Now, South 32 told the market that it pulled out of a deal following concerns raised by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission that the deal would reduce competition in the supply of metallurgical coal to Australian steelmakers. And it says metallurgical coal is a globally traded commodity, and to make the concessions would be, in their words, contrary to the global market in which metallurgical coal producers compete. And South 32 had actually struck an agreement in November to buy Peabody's Metropolitan Colliery, an associated 17% stake in the Port Kembla coal terminal south of Sydney. 
And finally, Gary, gold mining company Newcrest confirmed that its biggest mine is not likely to meet its full-year production guidance after it was hit by what it calls a seismic events in the early hours of Good Friday. The event on, Good, on April the 14th occurred around the operation of the Cadia Mine, 25 kilometres south of the city of Orange in New South Wales. And Newcrest told the market there have been no injuries on the site. All personnel working in the mine were removed to safe areas. And it said an assessment of the damage is now in progress. However, it foreshadowed that this would hurt production. And gold mining is very complicated business on very small margins. So that's quite a remarkable story. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're going to be talking to Ben Johnson from Empire. He's a specialist in the Internet of Things. Indeed. And the Internet of Things has been around for a long while, but is reaching a, a new currency. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you next week.